if you're following along with us in the reading the Bible in a year plan, where that we're going to be getting to, I think this week, or maybe next week, um, that begins in Genesis 37, where it speaks of a boy named Joseph, whom God gives dreams and the ability to interpret dreams. And that's pretty cool, right? Well, he tells, this Joseph tells his brothers that in his dream, he's going to rule over them. And wouldn't you know it, sibling rivalry being what it is, they don't take that too well. So one day they hatch a plan. And this is what it says in Genesis 39, verses 19 through 20. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what, has be- what will become of his dreams. That's sibling rivalry, huh? But let's not kill him, says one. And then another one says, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. So what happens? They make themselves some fun money by selling their brother as a slave to be sent to Egypt. And while he's there as a slave, even though he honors God in everything he does, he ends up in prison on false charges. He gets forgotten about when he interprets the dreams of two guys who are set free. But he's finally remembered when the king of the land, Pharaoh, has some disturbing dreams that no one can understand. And Joseph is brought before Pharaoh, and he tells him that there's going to be seven rich years of great abundance, and then seven years of awful famine. And Joseph also gives a plan for how to to prepare for all this. And Pharaoh likes the idea so much that he appoints Joseph as the second guy in charge in the whole nation of Egypt. So here's the question. Why is this story in our Bibles? Well, one of the reasons it's there is that God used evil to bring about good for his glory. And when God is glorified, his people experience great good. So here's the question for us today. Do you believe that he has done that for you? Do you believe that God has used evil to glorify himself and bring good for you? Well, what does this passage in John tell us? Starting in verse 27. So if you found it, please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. John chapter 12, verse 27. Jesus speaking. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. 
others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. You may have a seat. This whole section here in John chapter 12 is about the arrival of Jesus' what he calls hour. The hour of his death. The hour where he will be glorified. And it is through his death, through an evil act, as we'll see, that God is glorified. So we, we should believe our Savior crucified is God glorified. We should believe our Savior crucified is God glorified. So here's a question. How is God glorified by Jesus crucified? Firstly, God is glorified by Jesus' obedience. Well, let's look. How did he obey? How did Jesus obey his father? Well, firstly, he prayed for help. Look, in verse 27, he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Let's start off what he, with what he didn't say. He didn't say, I've got this, no big deal. Emotions are for other people. I'm not afraid to die. Maybe he wasn't, and likely he's not afraid to die. But no, he was acknowledging what was really going on, and he was acknowledging it to his father. He is troubled. That's something you don't hear about Jesus being very much, do you? Jesus being troubled. Do you know why? Because the Son of God, who is fully God and fully man, is facing imminent death. And he's, being, he's going to be put to death in one of the worst possible ways in history. Crucifixion. And on top of that, he is facing that awful reality in order, that in order to take away sins from us, he must face the Father, his Father, turning his face away from him. There's the human reality that he's going to die, but there's also the divine reality that for the first time in eternity, God the Son and God the Father are not going to be on speaking terms. God turning away from God, that mind-blowing, the most peaceful, loving, harmonious, and happiest relationship ever is severed for a time at the cross. 
Can you now, Matt, know why Jesus is troubled? And what did he do with his trouble? He took it to his father in prayer. Now it's debated as to whether he's speaking rhetorically here or out of his real anguish of soul, he's asking like he did in Gethsemane for the father to take away what he's about to undergo. Either way, he's coming to his father for help because he is troubled. So the question, one of the questions we should ask ourselves, where do we go when we're facing trouble? Who do we go to first? Do we go to Google to try to solve our problem? Or do we come as we have been graciously invited because of the cross to our Heavenly Father? who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or imagine. Follow Jesus' example and make it your heavenly Father above everyone else first. And then secondly, he obeyed by submitting to the Father. Because what does he pray? He says, Father, save me from this hour. No, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. You see, Jesus is facing two things simultaneously. He is facing the anguish of his soul, which is a natural desire, not necessarily sinful. I mean, if you don't feel anything, if you're about to face death, I wonder if you feel anything at all. He has a natural desire, an okay desire to avoid suffering. But the second, tied with that, is that the will of the Father is his number one priority. It has been from day one, it has been from eternity past, and will be into eternity future. That Jesus, the Son of God, is eager and wanting to do the will of the Father no matter what. He wanted above his comfort, above his personal well-being, above his ministry success to glorify God and see God's will be done. And it's at this moment that all of the scriptures, all of Jesus' perfect life and ministry get laser focused into this hour, into his death on the cross. All of the Father's will for Jesus comes down to and is completed through the cross. And he says, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. He comes to the cross because it's the Father's will. That's why he came. And God the Father responded, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And again, it's not clear from this passage how God has glorified his name previously. I mean, we need to just only pick up the book, and we can see hundreds, perhaps thousands, Thousands of examples of God glorifying himself just in the book. But here he says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the will glorify it again is the hour where Jesus dies. And from his death rises and is exalted. He glorifies his Father by obedience. And thirdly, in obedience, he pointed others to the Father. Because the crowd, as it says in verse 29, 
stood there and heard it, and they said that it had thundered. And others said, an angel has spoken to him. Now, given their reactions to this, maybe they heard the words, maybe they didn't. One group said it was thunder, and we have to understand something, that thunder in the first century was, was equated and associated with the voice of God. So they weren't, like, they weren't off on some anti-God thing, just natural explanation only. They did think that God had spoken, had done something. And the others were more specific, saying that an angelic messenger had spoken to him. But what's the point of this text? The point of this text is that what Jesus says next. He says, this voice has come, not for my sake, but for yours. Why, is it, why did God speak for their sake? Because when Jesus died, they were going to need a reminder, a really powerful reminder, of what he's going to teach in the next section about how he's going to glorify God. Because if they don't see the cross as God's name being glorified again, like we should, they're going to see it, as many do today, as an abysmal failure. God is glorified by Jesus' obedience. And in the Bible, trust is tied with obedience. Jesus trusted and desired the will of his Father so much that he obeyed even when he struggled with the implications of that obedience. And this should give us comfort and call us higher, church, because our Savior does not call us to anything that he has not already, already gone through. You think it's easy sometimes to go up to a stranger who you think might be hostile to the gospel and share the gospel with them? No, it's not. You have to die to yourself. Do you think it's easy to love the unlovable? No, it's not. Do you like the idea of facing persecution? Jesus obeyed to glorify the Father. And he wants us to do the same because he's been there. And we can have comfort that he's been there and he knows. We should believe our Savior crucified is God glorified. So how else? How else is God glorified by Jesus? Second, God is glorified by Jesus' judgment. We're going to focus on just this one verse. Verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Jesus firmly committed to God's glory and God responded. And the people hear this and Jesus teaches them now what it means. The glory of God through Jesus crucified means judgment. So here's the question that we need to ask. What did Jesus' death judge? Well, first, he says, his death judged the world. Now is the judgment of the, this world. <laughs> and here's the bad news of the gospel. But it's pretty recognizable, I think. The world is a pretty messed up place. Yeah. 
And have you ever noticed that you are too? Sure, we're not as bad as we could be. But no one went through 2020 or even gets through a day, a single day, rightly thinking that there was heaven on earth or that we really want God's will to be done in our lives every single second. And you know what the Bible calls the cause of this messed upness in the world, this messed upness in us? Sin. It's not a popular word in our world, but it's reality. It's called sin, and it's rebellion against God by our nature and our choices. So here's the question. What is God to do about that? Well, let me ask the hypothetical question first. What if God saw everything wicked? And you just need to think back maybe a little bit or a long ways in your life, and you can remember something awful that happened, whether you did it or someone did it to you or someone you love. What if God saw, and he does, what if God saw all of that and he did nothing about it? Could we call him what he calls himself, just, if he did nothing? Could we say he cares, and he says he does, if he did nothing? He calls himself just, he says he cares, so what must he do? He must judge. His holiness is at stake. Everything that he has said about his name is at stake if he, in dealing with sin. So how does he judge? How does Jesus say that he judges? Now, at this hour, is the judgment of this world. He judges at the cross. If you want justice, if you want to know that God will never leave a stone unturned, you need to look to the one who was on the cross. He will. He has promised to deal with everything. And we should rejoice in that, but we should also be warned because that means he's going to judge us too. Because we always want justice out there. But we want mercy in here, don't we? And we, sh and we should. We're banking on God's name. We don't deserve it, though. He must judge in here and out there. And it is here that God deals with the entire world in rebellion to him. And he did it by allowing the evil of that world, the evil of this world, to arrest him put him through a false trial, and nail him to a cross to suffocate to death. His death judged the world. And what is the judgment? Well, as one pastor said, when you are faced with the cross, you're going to do one of two things. There's only two options. One is you side with your sin against Jesus, 
And the cross is there to confirm your rejection against God. Or the judgment is you side with Jesus against yourself, against your sin. And at the cross, Jesus himself is judged for your sin. Either way, judgment is, met, is meted out. So which is it for you? Which will it be for you? His death judged the world, but it's not just the world that must be judged. Secondly, his death judged the devil. He says, again in verse 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And we haven't spoken much of what's going on behind the scenes in the Gospel of John. But we need to be clear that there is an effort, not merely on the part of fallen humanity, to destroy Jesus and his work. And that still is around doing stuff today. The ruler of this world is exactly who you think it is. It's Satan, the devil, the deceiver, the father of lies, that great serpent, the dragon. goes by all sorts of horrible names. And it is his scheme that is part of the driving to put Jesus to death. I mean, you can practically hear the demonic when the chief priests and Pharisees are crying and calling for his death. But what does this text say? Now, this hour of Jesus being crucified, the very thing that Satan thought would bring him victory, the death of the Son of God, the extinguishing of the mission of salvation, is actually Satan's defeat and his dethronement. See, at the cross... Jesus, on his own, stormed the spiritual beaches of Normandy at D-Day. And everything after that, the days in which we live in, are the days approaching V-Day. It's cleanup from here. This is good news. He not only takes care of our sin at the cross, he takes care of the one who wants to keep us in sin at the cross. So we need to ask, how is he cast out? Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So what is it? What is it that Satan has to keep us enslaved to sin? Have you ever thought about that? Well, you may know that his name, Satan, actually is translated accuser. And what Satan, the accuser, does is accuse us before God of breaking God's law. And before Jesus Christ, on our own, God judges sin, and if Satan accuses us before the Father of sin, we can't get out of our guilt. And thus we're dead, and we're headed for hell if we're found guilty. And apart from the cross, we are guilty. But at the cross, what does Jesus do? The kid said it. He takes away our sin. 
He takes away God's wrath against sin. He dies in our place. He bears our guilt and instead gives us His perfect righteousness, His life, His holiness. And do you know what that means? That means that the basis for the devil accusing you and calling for your condemnation is gone. He has no right at all anymore because of the cross to condemn you. You are set free. That is why Romans 8 verses 1 through 2 shouts true. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. His death judged the devil. And God is glorified by Jesus' judgment. Do you believe this? Do you bank on this? When you sin, not if. I don't know about you, but there have been many a time when I have sinned and I hear a whisper in my ear. You're not really a Christian. Christians wouldn't do this. Don't go to God. He won't talk. He won't listen to you now. Lie after lie after lie after lie. And we can call it that because of the cross. And we don't have to remain there anymore. He has set us free. We should believe our Savior crucified, his God glorified. And these are all tied together, but there is a final way in this passage that God is glorified. Third, God is glorified by Jesus' salvation. We've been talking about it already. But he goes on to say, after he says, talks of judgment, he says in verse 32, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. He shows them by, he tells them how he's going to die. And what do they do? They run off to a seeming contradiction instead of paying attention to the urgency of the message. What are they in need of? Salvation. What are we in need of? The same thing. Salvation. So how must they and we be saved? Yes, Jesus draws all people to himself. But some things happen in the process. First, we must identify the light. Jesus calls himself the, the light of the world in the Gospel of John. And here he says, when he says, the light is among you a little while longer, he's talking about himself. There is no salvation if you have not identified the right Jesus. And the right Jesus is the one who is nailed to the cross. 
And the right Jesus is the one who does not make distinctions when it comes to who he draws to the cross. You're Jewish? Come! You're Greek? Come! You're slave? Come! You're free? Come! You're a man? Come! You're a woman? Come! You're a child? Come! You're rich? Come! You're poor? Come! You've had a great life? Come! Your life's covered with manure? Come! You breathe and take nourishment? Come! The arms of the right Jesus were wide open at the cross. And they remain open, drawing people to himself. Not everyone will come, but he is for people, as as Revelation 7 verse 9 says, of every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages. You are not exempt today. Today is a day of salvation. So let's, but let's answer the, ask, answer the question. They say that the Christ remains forever from the law. Is that really the case? Well, yes, in one way. But he does so by being lifted up. What they were missing in their zeal for a political revolutionary who is going to restore a nation, not bring salvation to the world, what they were missing, but what Jesus being lifted up at the cross would reveal, which is also spoken of in the Old Testament, is that the death of Christ, the death of the Son of Man, the death of the one called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, what they needed to see was how his kingdom was established. How he is able to be high priest forever, as Psalm 110 says. How he has an everlasting dominion. How he would remain forever. And that is through the cross. And in we, in order for us to be saved, we must ident- have identified the right Jesus. And secondly, not just identify him, Not just point him out. We must believe and walk in the light. Because Jesus doesn't spend much time at all with their question. He says in verse 35, Walk, he says, the light is among you a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, guys. Lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light. He says, believe in me and you'll know who the Son of Man is. You'll know who the Christ is. They need to take advantage of all the opportunity is there. That's what it means to walk in the light. It means to believe him, trust him, obey him, and to see reality by him. And Jesus pleads with this crowd. He's on his way to the cross. He doesn't speak this from an untroubled soul. He says, while you have the light, walk in the light. Believe it, lest darkness overtake you. Because there came a point where they could no longer see Jesus. And there will come a point in the history of this world 
where the opportunity to believe Jesus, to be saved from darkness, to have life in him, will end. And if we don't believe him, if we don't walk in the light while the opportunity is there, darkness will overtake us. And that means we won't be able to get out of it even if we wanted to. And that has eternal consequences. So Jesus calls to them, and he calls to us, and he calls us to bring that message to others. Walk in the light! Believe in the light! You don't have to stumble around not knowing that you're continuing in your condemnation. You can be set free by faith in the light. We must believe and walk in the light. And thirdly, we must be identified by the light. As he says in verse 36, he says, Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And believe in the light. Why? So that you may be identified with light, not darkness anymore. So here's a question. Who or what identifies you? Where do you get your identity from? Are you identified primarily by your ethnicity? By your socioeconomic status? Your family name, your business, your school, your sex? Are you identified with what you have done? Whether good or bad, are you identified by what you didn't do? Are you identified by what people have said about you? Whether true or false? Or is your identity formed in identifying and believing Jesus the Christ? And that by believing you have life in his name, where you are known as his forever before everyone. There was a time in my life when I thought my identity was found in music. I was a music major. So if I played well, I was affirmed in my identity. If I performed poorly, I thought I was a horrible person. If others thought I did well, I was a good person. If others laughed at me or told me I didn't do well, I was a worthless person. Do you know what that is? an identity in darkness. You stumble around looking in all the wrong places. But Jesus in his mercy rescued me. And when he glorifies God in salvation, he says to his people, no more of this nonsense of darkness. You are to be defined by me, Jesus says. The light, who I am and what I say. And so we should believe our Savior crucified is God glorified. We must believe that Jesus glorified God in salvation.
So I'll ask the question again. Has he used something evil as the means of displaying his glory? Has he used the means of something evil, crucifixion, to display his glory to you? Have you seen how he has done that for you in this text? Jesus obeyed, he judges, and he saves at the cross. We should believe our Savior crucified is God glorified. And going back to the original story that I brought up, do you remember? Actually, let me ask a different question. Do you know the bigger reason why the story of Joseph is in the Bible? Evil treatment, sold into slavery, put in prison, then raised to second highest in command in the land. Why? To keep people alive. And it was after Joseph was lifted up to his position that his brothers came and he revealed himself to them. If you read it, it's a crazy. They're terrified of him. And they should be for the way they treated him. And the amount of and the power that he had then. But what did he do? They thought he was going to condemn them. You know what the truth is? They were already in condemnation. Joseph didn't need to do that. Jesus doesn't need to come and tell you that you're condemned. You're already condemned apart from him. What they needed was salvation. What we need is the good news of salvation. And Joseph pointed them to the reality that God was willing to give it. And it says in Genesis chapter 50, it takes a lot of chapters to cover this amazing story, 37 to 50, to the end of the, end of the book of Genesis. The brothers speaking, they say this, And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Now listen. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. For I am, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. And to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That passage is ultimately about Jesus. And it points here. The evil God meant to bring about the saving of many lives. So we should believe that our Savior, crucified, is God glorified. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you those words don't seem like enough, Lord. Thank you. That you used something that we look, would look at on the outside as something so despicable and awful and a failure, and you used it to declare your glory, your triumph, You used it to bring about saving of many lives. 
many of whom, actually some of a large number, are here right this morning in this building. Father, we pray, please be glorified. Be glorified as we walk in the light, as sons and daughters of the light. Be glorified as we tell of the cross. Be glorified as we tell of the resurrection. Be glorified as we tell of where you are now, Lord Jesus, exalted, seated on the, at the right hand of the Father, always living to make intercession for your people. Lord, we thank you that you have done what we could not do for ourselves. We pray, please, in our lives and around this world, be glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' good and holy name.